0: Hello, and welcome to Compass Church. If you have any questions about this message or are interested in learning more, please contact us. We'd love the opportunity to connect. Now, enjoy today's message. Charlie Munger, who is Warren Buffett's business partner, he gave the world beautiful things like Costco. Charlie Munger once said that part of the the key to his success was to take a simple idea, but take it seriously. Seriously. Take a simple idea and take it seriously. And that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at an idea that many of you have heard your whole lives. God is love. And we're going to unpack that. What in the world does that mean? We're going to take that simple idea and show that it has serious implications for our lives. God is love. So I'm going to read our passage and I'm going to pray one more time. 1 John 4 starting in verse 7. Loved ones, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love doesn't know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his unique son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Loved ones, since God has loved us in this way, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God dwells with us, and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he and us, he has given us of His spirit, and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the savior of the world. Father, I pray that this truth, God is love, would not be some static, churchy thing that we say, but that we would really understand who you are this morning, that you are not loving, you are love itself. God, I pray that our, our hearts would be open through your spirit, that you would work and your word would really transform our lives and that we would rearrange the furniture in our lives around the truth of your love. I ask all these things in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Well, love is one of the most disappointing experiences on the planet. Easily. Just ask Astrid Hollider. Uh, Astrid Hollander, uh, She was born in Amsterdam in the mid '60s, uh, into the blue-collar neighbor of Jordaan, um, and her father was a truck driver for for Heineken, for Freddie Heineken. He really he looked up to the man, loved the guy, and uh, delivered beer for him. Uh, and Astrid says that growing up, her house was filled with Heineken products. Uh, they had Heineken plates, Heineken glasses, Heineken balloons. For every event, it was like catered by Heineken. It seemed like. One of the downsides of that, though, was that Heineken was also consumed every single day by Astrid's father. He was an alcoholic, and he was a mean drunk. He would beat all of his four kids regularly and his wife. Uh, Astrid talks about how he was really unstable. She had no idea to predict his behavior. Sometimes she would come home from school, and she would put her hand on one side of the furniture, and he wanted her hand on the other side, and so he'd beat her up. This supposed to be loving relationship ended up being really toxic. Uh, Astrid actually describes um, a situation she remembers where she was trying to eat her food and it was too much for her, and she ended up throwing up, and um, she ended up, you know, passing out from just being so tired and being beaten. And she remembers waking up to her dad beating up her mom uh, because her mom, while Astrid had passed out, would try to move Astrid's face out of her own vomit. Her father was a cruel, cruel drunk. But in all this hopelessness, Astrid had hope. Her oldest brother, Vim, wasn't afraid of her dad at all. Uh, And Vim started just like just rebelling and doing whatever he wanted. He'd come home when he'd want and be like, does dad know? I don't care. And Astrid loved that. She found like great comfort in that. And she always dreamed about leaving. She learned English and she was like, okay, I'm headed to America. I'm leaving this life behind me. I can't wait to get out. But as she was getting ready to go, her plans got disrupted because her brother's life of crime started ratcheting up, and her brother did something that would keep her in Amsterdam for a long time. Uh, In the 80s, her brother, in perhaps an act of defiance against her dad, committed easily one of the most famous kidnappings of the 20th century. Yep, Vim kidnapped Freddie Heineken. Uh, they made a movie about it, Anthony Hopkins plays Heineken. Um, but anyway, this like, local criminal decided with his friends, let's kidnap the richest man in Amsterdam. So they kidnapped him, him and his chauffeur, drove him to a warehouse, and left him there for months. Um, they actually almost got away with it. They demanded a ransom of $35 million, and they got it. So while this was going on, Astrid had no idea. She remembers even talking to Vim and saying, like, who would kidnap Heineken? This is totally insane. And Vim's like, ah, they'll probably get away with it. She's like, there's no way they'll get away with it. So one day, uh, the police kick in Astrid's door. They arrest Vim. And because, uh, you know, the Netherlands has pretty liberal policing laws, Vim only went to jail for five years. But then this is kind of like a really messed up part of this story. Uh, Heineken was so afraid of Vim that they worked out a deal where Heineken wouldn't press, like, he wouldn't ask for his money back. So Vim goes to jail with $35 million and starts investing in the underbelly of the Netherlands. So he starts buying all these businesses in the red light district. And so in the meantime, Astrid goes to law school, she becomes a lawyer, and so she wants to start practicing law. Big problem, though. Her last name is Holleder, same as Vim. She can't get a job. So what does someone do in that situation? She starts practicing law, for criminals. Now all of a sudden you have the makings of a Dutch crime family, which sounds like the nicest crime family, like if you had to pick a crime family, but these, I don't know. So Vim starts getting more and more serious about crime and starts committing deeper and deeper crimes, and Astrid is all watching and watching as everyone around Vim starts dying. He starts murdering friends, family members, and she starts to get suspicious. So one day Astrid wears a wire, and starts recording conversations with Vim. Fast forward to today, right now this is still happening. I hope Vim does not Google his name because I'm talking about him and he's still a real person. But Vim is right now awaiting trial because his sister turned him in um, and for the murders of like eight people and it's the mega trial of, this, of like the decade in the Netherlands and his sister is the key star witness in this trial. And it's really messed up. Astrid is living in hiding. She had to buy a bulletproof car. Um, her brother has ordered hits from prison on her. And so it's this really tumultuous relationship. So he was her, like, savior and her way out of this really dark life. And now he is worse than the darkness she was experiencing. But listen to what Astrid has to say about her brother. A reporter from The New Yorker asked Astrid, what do you if you could sit down with your brother and say anything to him, what would you want him to know? This is what she said. That I still love him in spite of everything. I wish he could be a brother to me. And yeah, I wish I could take him home. Love is one of the most disappointing experiences on the planet. Take, take someone like Astrid and now imagine saying to her, God is love. What's she going to say to that? We wouldn't blame her if she said, No thanks. I've tried love, it's disappointing. I've been there, done that, it's not my thing. You know, and like, we all, actually, there's a sense where that's kind of healthy, right? Like, if you met someone and they had, like, this Disney perspective of love, like, everything's going to be great, we're in love, we're going to, like, ride off into the rainbow, it's going to be awesome, like, you'd be like, whoa, whoa, like, you need, you need a heavy dose of reality. So how is it good news when John wants us to know that God is love? I don't know. No, I'm just kidding. I don't. I do know. (laughs) C.S. Lewis is really helpful in helping us understand how can love be so disappointing? It's a desire that when you chase after it, it never gets fulfilled and it's disappointing, and yet God is love, and that's supposed to be this bedrock, really encouraging truth that, that keeps us going. This is what Lewis does. Lewis talks about different types of love. There's two types of love, Lewis says. There's natural loves. Those are loves like that you have for a family, Uh, that affection, that you love uh, a child and you love caring for that child, you love your parents, that's affection. There's friendship. You find someone that cares about the things you care about and there's just this this, like, man, we get each other, I love you, you love me, friendship. And there's also romance, uh, like where you like find somebody super attractive and you're like, I'm willing to drop whatever and just chase after that person. Lewis says the fact that those loves, those natural loves, can't satisfy us is proof positive that we were made and wired for a different kind of love. This is what he says. He says, these loves are secondary loves. And when we try to push them into the place of primary loves, they'll never work. And Lewis says the only type of love that will work is the love that John describes in this passage. God's love. So we need to understand that. We need to unpack and understand the statement. What does John mean when he says, God is love? So there's three things we need to look at this morning. First, we need to understand how God redefines love. What, this sentence, God is love, it, it's not super helpful if we bring our ideas of love to the picture. We need to know how God thinks about love and how he defines it. And after we do that, we can then see how the cross transforms us into loved ones, and then once we do that, we can join God in his mission of love. So let's first look at this. Let's first look at how God redefines love. So let's think about that sentence for a little bit. God is love, okay? That sentence doesn't make any sense outside of the Trinity. What? Yeah, yeah, I know. Hang in with me for just a second. So the Trinity, one God, three persons, Father, Spirit, Son, all God. Think about for a second if there was no Trinity. If God, let's just say for a second you have a God over here who's an impersonal God. Well, we can't in any way say that that God is love. What, he's not love. What about a unipersonal God where there's just one God who's one person and he's, he's existed forever just as one being? Well, we can't say that that God is love. We may be able to say that that God is loving, We may be able to say that that God likes the idea of love, but that God is not himself love. That God would need to create something to love. And you see what happens there? That's power coming before love. See, he, he, in order to love and to experience love, he needs to make something. He needs to be a creator. But the God of Scripture, how he reveals himself, is himself love. That means in eternity past, before God created the world, Father, Son, and Spirit existed in community, loving each other, each seeking the good for the other, delighting in one another, not needing anything. And and Jesus actually says that. If you think I'm going off the rails, just give me one second. Jesus, as he's praying his high priestly prayer in John 17, says this to the Father. He says this, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am, to see my glory. The glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Only the God of Scripture can be said to be love. This God is not loving. His identity is love. And that gets us to the second thing of how we start to see how God starts to redefine and reshape our idea of love. When God reveals himself as love, he's giving you one of his most important roles, and it's this idea of father. So so the word father isn't used anywhere in our passage, but if you look at verses seven and nine, it describes what the father does. Listen to this. uh, Loved ones, let us love one another because love comes from God. Everyone who loves God has been born of God and knows God. And then look at verse nine. This is how God showed his love. He sent his unique son. So verse seven talks about God uh, if you love, you have been born from God. What is a father? A father is somebody who has kids, who get, someone is born from that person, and that person is like the father. So for example, if you meet my son Jet, he probably will never be a star quarterback. He probably will never be like the captain of the bait team. Uh, he'll probably be a kid who listens to music really loud and cries when he's tired because he's my son. He's like me. In that situation, I gave him life. Though, I mean, his mom did way more than I did. But that's what a father does. A father is a source of life and gives life to his children. That is what God is saying he is. And it's really difficult for many of us to grasp God as father because a lot of us compare God as father to our earthly fathers. And we think like, well, this is how my dad was, so is this how God is? Um, Michael uh, Michel Foucault, who's a French philosopher, um, talked about his terrible relationship with his dad. His dad was a surgeon uh, and he was sick and tired of having, I think it, the quote is, a mamby-pamby for a son. His son was a wimp and he didn't like it. So he took his son into the surgery room with him and he forced his like 10-year-old son to watch him amputate an arm. So he watched his son, he, he had to watch scalpel go through flesh, go through bone, go through flesh. And Foucault saw that at a young age and said, I'm done with my dad. No more. And so then when we say God is a father, for some of us, that's not good news. I had a dad. He was terrible. I don't want God to be my dad. And the good news, the hope of this passage is this. God is not some souped-up version of your dad. All right? Like, he's not up there in, like, heaven with a fanny pack wandering around Disneyland telling you, you better have a good time because we paid a lot of money for this. Like, God, that's not what it means for God to be your father. Like, we got to get, we got to get our thinking backwards on this. Like, what it means for God to be the father is that he's the source. And what is he the source of? Love. Love flows out of who he is. God can't not love. That's who he is. And father, it's not just a day job for him. It's not like, okay, You got enough fatherly stuff, like I'm done for the day, I've been pretty tired, so I'm just gonna like hang out with Netflix. You guys are on your own. No, it's who he is, it's what he does. This is what John is trying to help us understand when he says, God is love. God is not loving, God is love. It flows out of his very nature. How you finish that sentence, God is, is so important for your life. There's not one area of your life that will not be impacted by how you finish that sentence. And if you don't believe me, listen to Karl Barth. Barth uh, lived in Europe during World War II and he watched Hitler rise to power and he pointed out very famously that Hitler's favorite title for God was the Almighty. Hitler loved that God was power. Do you see how that shaped Hitler's life? What was the most important thing to Adolf Hitler? Power. Why? Because his God was power. That's not the God of Scripture. The God of Scripture does not introduce himself as, hello, I am power. The God of Scripture introduces himself as love. And here's the other good thing of this passage. The other great news that is, is, and Lewis pointed this out, and at first I didn't really see it, and I thought it was kind of nerdy, but it's amazing. This God whose love doesn't need us, and that's really good news. That's really good news. If God needed you, you could manipulate him. If God needed you, you could bargain in this relationship. But God doesn't need us. That's amazing news. That's so freeing. God wants us. This God who exists in perfect community, in perfect love, joy, completeness, wholeness, says, hey, let's spread this. Let's invite others into this. And that's what the cross is. The cross is God going public with his love. That's what we need to see next. We need to see how the cross transforms us into loved ones. How does the cross transform people into ones who are loved by God? Well, again, I would say that this is where uh, verse 10, C.S. Lewis just really helpfully explains this. This is verse 10 this is love. This is love right here. What is love? This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. See that? If if God loved us because we loved him, he's just responding to us. But God loved us when we were unlovely when we didn't love him. That's amazing. That's What what this passage is saying is that love is the basis for grace. Lewis describes it like this. Imagine a couple who's getting married. Uh, uh, Two spouses, they get married, and one is anxiously looking forward to providing for the other, saying like, hey, we're going to get a house, I'm going to work, you just hang out, I'm going to provide for you and take care of you. They get married, and that spouse, who was like, I'm going to provide for you, I got you, gets sick. And not only do they get sick where they lose control of their bodily functions, their mood just goes down. So they, they're physically demanding, and they're not fun to be around. But then that spouse starts, like, tirelessly, tirelessly serving the other, their spouse. It becomes a, they get more and more joy and energy from loving on that spouse. That's what God's love for you is like. You had nothing to offer. Not only did you have nothing to offer, you're difficult to love. For the outsider, um, talking about, if if you're not a Christian and you go to church, I I think one of the things that you hear that we kind of take for granted is, like, we talk about ourselves in weird ways. We're like, oh, we're so sinful. We're, you know, our righteousness is like dirty rags. Woe is me. And you're like, man, these people just have this weird, like, they're just beat up on themselves. Um, what we're doing, though, is we're awakening to this reality. We don't bring anything to the table, and that's good news for us. We can be messes. We don't have to bring our best selves to church. We can bring our real selves to church because that's who God loves. That's what makes you a loved one. Like, and, and it's really important. If you have an NIV, cross out where it says in verse 7 and verse 11, it says, dear friends just scratch that right out and write loved ones. What John does is he takes the noun agape, love, and he just throws it at his people. He's like, this changes your identity. When you're loved by God in a way where you had nothing to offer and he just showers you with love, that gives you a new name. And think about the guy writing this book for a second, John. Do you know how John is introduced in the gospels? Jesus and his disciples want to go through a town and the people are like, no, 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 you guys need to go around. And John's like, hey, can we call like fire down to kill these people? Like, he's a super angry dude, and now love is the most important thing in his life. Why? Because he's experienced being loved at his worst. That's the gospel. And, and there's also an identity that's given to this son. Uh, look at verse 10 again. He sent his son the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Now, I went to seminary, and I kind of had a hard time there because, like, in seminary, people use all this like tribal lingo. They use words like sanctification, atonement, and like I don't think anybody knows what those words mean, but we just keep throwing them out there. The word atonement is really like everyone drops it. What does it mean? It's really, this is an easy one. It's made up of three words, and it's, okay, ready? It's made up of the word at, one, and meant, okay? The word atonement is three words, at, one, meant, Meant is the status of being something. So an improvement is the status of being approved. We are, Jesus is the atonement. We are now the status of being at one. See what the cross does? The cross brings us back to God. That's what the atonement is. This is all about love. How you finish the sentence, God is, is so important. If you finish the sentence, God is a traffic cop, That's going to have major implications on your life for how you approach rules and how you approach just life in general. Amy and I lived in L.A. for many years, and I prided myself on not getting any speeding tickets or parking tickets or speeding tickets, any tickets. Um, I didn't get any really until like the months we were moving here. Um, But there was one time where we were having like this men's breakfast at my house And I had all these chairs I had to take out. And so I'm walking out, and it was street sweeping day. And so it's 8 o'clock. It's like 8.01. I'm like, oh, I'm a little late, but I think I'll be okay. So I have all these folding chairs, and I walk out the street, and I start to see, I see there's no cars on my street except for mine, and there's a meter made beside it. I'm like, oh, no. And so I pick up the chairs, and I just booked it up this hill with all these folding chairs. And I'm like, wait, 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 wait. Wait, what if I move it? Will you not give me a ticket? And I saw her. She was about to hit print. And she went, fine, you're cool. I was like, thank you. She drove away, and it was awesome. On the walk back, I was like, oh, my gosh, I just saved 50 bucks. (laughs) That's like making 50 bucks. What am I going to do with my 50 bucks? This is awesome. (laughs) I was super grateful. I was super excited. But you know one thing I wasn't? I didn't love that meter maid. Why would I? That's super weird. If God is just a judge who lets you off the hook, you'll never love him. You won't. Why would you? That'd be super weird. But on the cross, God's aim is not just to let you off the hook, God's aim is to invite you into this love relationship, to let you experience love, and love is a person. That's what he says in verse 7. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. When you are saved, when you are rescued by this love, it just becomes a part of what you do because you know you've been born of a God who is love. Lewis talks about how we don't, no one naturally seeks after a love like this. We don't naturally want to be loved by a God who We just have to admit our brokenness. We have to admit we have nothing to offer. But Lewis says it like this. You are never more tall than when you bow. You are never more tall than when you bow. So now that we see how God redefines love, love is not just this nice idea. It's actually a person. It's the triune God And this God goes public with that love. He puts his love on display on the cross to rescue people back to himself. He invites us to join God in his mission of love. Look at verse 12. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God dwells with us and his love is made complete in us. Why point out that no one has ever seen God? Because God is so intimately connected to love That when we love one another, people get to see the invisible God. That's crazy. You want to know what God is like? Go to church and watch people love each other. That's God on display. He's not just inviting us to uh, be loved. He's inviting us to participate in this relationship of love. And this has always been God's plan from the very beginning. Think back to the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve sin, and they run and hide from God. See that right there? You see how sin separates? They don't want to be around this God who is love. They book it. They head the opposite direction. And what happens? God comes after them, and he says this, where are you? Why did he say that? He knows where they are. He doesn't need to ask that. He's trying to communicate I care for you. I'm initiating this. I'm pursuing you. I loved you when you didn't love me. And what does God's love want to do? Reconcile. Be at one. That's what verse uh, 12 says. That when God dwells with us, his love is made complete in us. That word made complete, it's the Greek word telos. It's the end goal of love. Love has an end goal. It's to be with you. That is not sappy. That is not sentimental. God, the goal of God's love is to dwell among his people. God wants his love to go public, and when we as a church receive that love, God's love dwells with us. And that has always been the goal of his mission from the very first pages of Scripture. So what are some of the applications of this? What do we do with all this info? Okay, like I'm kind of, man. So um, when, I, when we started doing this series, I just have, this is confession time. I've not really read a lot of C.S. Lewis. Um, I'm not the smartest guy at the table ever. And when you read C.S. Lewis, it's just like, what did he say? Like, I don't, he, I mean, he was an Oxford Don. He's really smart. I'm not really smart. I don't get what you said, man. Um, and so I, there were, like, things I had to read again and again and again as I was prepping for this where I'm like, I think he's saying this. I'm going to say he's saying this. I'm sure someone will tell me it's wrong. But uh, one of the things that Lewis said, which I think is really helpful for how do we cultivate love, um, it actually sounds really unhelpful when you first hear it. But hear me out and I could be wrong. This is what uh, Lewis, Lewis asks this question. Is it easy to love God? And then he gives this answer. It's easy for those who do it. And you're like, wow, thanks, CS, that's crazy helpful. (laughs) And then he says this, just like it's easy for the healthy person to be healthy. And so I think this is what he's saying, and I think it's a little hope-filled. This is what he's saying. He's saying that just like you can't, be healthy by telling yourself to be healthy. You can't love God by telling yourself to love God. Um, how do you love God? John tells us. Dwell. You dwell with him. The promise that if you're in Christ, um, if you're outside of Christ and God dwells with you, that's dangerous. Poof. Yeah, I mean, you're gone. Toast. He's holy. You're not. Boom. But now that we're in Christ, when we dwell with God, Instead of being toast, his character rubs off on us. When we dwell with love, it starts to change us. Jesus said it like this, if you abide in me, you will bear fruit. Listen to what he's not saying. Bear fruit. He's saying this, abide with me, be with me, and you'll bear fruit. God is love, and that's so bedrock to who he is that when you're around him, you start loving. You start, God starts rubbing off on you. So what does that mean for us? One, I think that impacts how we evangelize. Um, Tim Keller pointed out very helpfully that the Trinitarian God is really helpful in evangelism in that only a God who is love can create a world that you wanna live in. Uh, if you don't wanna live in a world where materialism is king, where uh, status is king but relationships matter, the only world that that can be is when a world where God is love. So it helps us in our evangelism. I think the second way it helps us is it, understanding that God is love and taking that seriously makes relationships a priority. People are not distractions on your path to the good life. People are the point. Relationships matter because at the heart of who God is is Love. And you can't love if you're by yourself. And the last thing I think that this helps for application-wise is it lets us be honest about our failures. If we really believe that God loves us when we have nothing to offer, that when we're unlovey, unlovely, we can look at unlovely people and be gracious to them. We ourselves can receive grace. We don't have to spend all of our energy covering ourselves, uh, our failures up. Trying to present our best selves all the time. We can be our true selves. Like, hey, I'm a mess. I haven't done my quiet time in months. And not because I'm busy. I have a ton of time. I just don't feel like doing it. We can say things like that because it's not a game of who's more spiritual. We have been loved when we're unlovely, and that helps us receive love and in turn, love others. God is love. It's a simple idea with serious implications. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you uh, would open the eyes of our hearts to receive this love from you, that we would not be shy about um, our need for you, that as Lewis encourages us, that we would be jolly beggars coming to you just declaring our need for you to wash us and to love us. ask all these things in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.